It's One American Podcast Live, and we have the pleasure and honor of having Calvin Robinson with us today. How are you, Calvin? Oh, good. Thank you. I love that introduction, by the way. Very sound. Although thank you. I appreciate it. One principle out there I don't agree with. Okay, tell me. That's, that's, that's acceptable. <laughs> so um, the right to life, absolutely perfect. Liberty, uh-huh. fundamental. But the pursuit yeah. of happiness, I think actually that is the downfall of American values. Tell me about that. Why? Well, I think what, we, what we're looking at is happiness is, is an emotive state. It's a temporary uh, hmm. feeling. And it's a fleeting feeling that we're constantly chasing. And I'm all for the free market capitalism. I'm all for, you know, the least worst approach. But it, capitalism it becomes an ideology at some point when you're in the pursuit of happiness. And rather than what we should be looking at, which is something larger than ourselves, it should be our focus on God. It should be our focus on our family and our focus on the community. And the pursuit of happiness is actually individualistic. It's quite selfish mm. fundamentally because we're looking for our own personal happiness. And again, that's something that's always fleeting, always changing. You can never actually achieve. We should be looking more towards what brings fulfillment, what brings contentment. Mm. Do you think that the, in the time that the text was written, happiness had more of a connotation of fulfillment? I think you're right there. It might be that the language has changed over time. Uh, and what we now see as happiness is something completely different. It might have been more contentedness and, and fulfillment back in the day. But we still we still use that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. And I think people, mm-hmm. what they mean by that is the white picket fence, the high salary, and mm-hmm. you know, entrepreneurship, which is great. I'm in full favor of those things, but they are not sure. the core essential part of our, of our well-being and our lives. That's interesting. But, you know, there's this, there's this, you know, emphasis, obviously, in the United States, in terms of our constitution on like the freedom of religion, right? And so I, you know, keep bearing that in mind, do you think that the founding fathers, though, many of them would have had a consensus that, you know, things like community involvement, and, you know, your pursuit of your relationship with God are important, that it was important that that not be explicit in the text, because this is supposed to be something that's sort of accessible to all faiths or, or lack. Yeah, it's quite sensible, and you know, I, I assume that most of the founding fathers were Christians, uh, and it's a mm. it's a very Christian mentality to say, yeah, we are, you know we want to worship God, but at the same time, we appreciate that other people might not want to, and we want to be open and liberal and accepting. But at the same time, whenever we do that, we water down our own values. Whenever we try to be inclusive, we always water down what we believe in, and that's that's a pattern I've seen throughout history. Yeah, yeah, I understand. And the sort of the difference between uh, compromise and a deal in the sense that a compromise is when both parties lose and a deal is when both parties win. That's sort of kind of the famous Ayn Rand. And I'm, I'm sure you're not a, a big fan of Ayn Rand just because of her atheism, but she's got she got some things right. But, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I heard you mention uh, um, uh, sort of like a subtle antagonism to selfishness. I tweeted something earlier today um, uh, where I sort of put out the thought that, you know, Political systems and governments can't make some make individuals within a society more or less moral. It seems that the human nature is sort of fixed in that the, what the political systems do is they manifest how human nature plays out differently. So, for example, if you were in Soviet Union, people are just as greedy in the Soviet Union as they are in the United States. But in a, in a communist society, that manifests much differently than in a capitalist society. And so I wonder what you think about selfishness 
because the term sort of has a negative connotation in that and implies that someone will sacrifice someone else for their own good. But when I think of selfishness, I think of it in the sense like, hey, I want to make as much money as possible. So I'm going to find a way to uh, manufacture cars in the least expensive way possible. And therefore, you know, more people can afford to buy a car. So in that sense, Henry Ford's selfishness was actually a good thing because capitalism sort of manipulated it. It's everything in moderation, isn't it? So obviously, I'm always yeah. fighting against socialism and against communism. This idea that we always need to be looking out for the wider community doesn't make sense. But uh, mm-hmm. so we do have to have an element of selfishness, but it has to be focused on God and focused on the family because the family is fundamental to the conservative way of life, in my opinion, which is why the far left are always trying to break down the family in, in their first approach because once they own your child's thoughts, they, they own the future. Um, so we do have to be selfish to a degree, but within limits. Everything is within limits, though, isn't it, really? I'm probably. But to say everything is with limits is kind of radical. <laughs> <laughs> there are no absolutes. <laughs> Only Sith deal in absolutes, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The, the Sith were the good guys in that film. You know, The Jedi were, the, were actually the ideological zealots. The Jedi were the bad guys in those films. It's just portrayed from that perspective. So you think Darth Vader was right the whole time? <laughs> I don't think anyone's right the whole time, but I, I do th- I do side more with the Sith than the Jedi. <laughs> At yeah, the end of the day, yeah. they said they weren't political and they went in there and wiped people out that didn't agree with them. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you think this is going to play out? Do you think that the, um, do you think that the collectivists are going to win in the end? Oh, that's a big question to start with. Uh, <laughs> I think in some ways they have already won. I think, when, you know, people often say, how are we doing in the culture wars? And I don't think there is a culture war. I think we've lost the culture war. But now it's about how do we come back from that? How do we return to our values and our principles that we believe in? And it's, it's you know, reversing that long march through the institution. It is a case of standing up for what we believe in. And, you know, because conservatives in general tend to think, just let everyone else get on with it as long as they're not hurting me just mind my business but now we need to take right. a stand and say actually these principles are the right principles the best principles and we're going to fight for them how do how do how does that play out because i i don't know i don't know what it's like in the united kingdom but in the united states obviously i'm obviously you're aware there's all a tremendous amount of distrust in the system and i i don't i don't know where to land on election fraud i i have mixed feelings about it I, there's a lot of foolish people on both sides of that argument so it's really hard to know who to believe um and, and but you know traditionally the the, the beautiful thing about the united states and, and i guess a republic in general is that if you're unhappy with something you can you can push for the next election cycle but if there's no faith in that process then how how do you fix something how do you fix a political problem if there's no political process i, know, this I mean is violence I'm, really, I'm struggling with this myself because i i believe in democracy i promote democracy all the time mm. but i'm getting to a point now where i'm questioning does it even work or does it even exist anymore so mm. in this country in the united kingdom for example we had the referendum on leaving the european union and we won mm. that referendum with a majority but since then i've seen a decline of democracy in our country so the losers didn't consent the losers refused to consent for a big amount of time they used every system in their power to, to avoid taking us out of the European Union. You know, our government, our parliamentarians, our politicians were all fighting against the democratic vote of the people. And I think that's that's very, very scary. But since then, we've seen a pattern. So we've seen it in general elections. You guys have seen it too with Trump. Uh, in that the losers, well, on both, both of those elections, actually, when Trump won, 
the loser said no he didn't win when trump lost right. the loser said no he didn't lose we're no longer conceding and without concession we cannot have a functioning democracy we have to acknowledge mm. the winning side and, and fight to win the next time around and we, I, i'm really terrified about what's happening yeah, I I don't know what the solution is going to be. You know, I, I've been working on a video that I'm going to publish later today, just sort of a, a solo video um, talking about the idea of zeitgeist. Um, and this is something that I learned about from uh, one of my professors when I was in school, sort of informally and sort of he was sort of a mentor. And he was writing a book about, you know, what what a zeitgeist means, what the spirit of the times mm-hmm. is. Right. And, and we sort of at the time we looked at the difference in, you know, album art on um you know album covers for music before and after the great recession right so if you remember the early 2000s it was all about you know being very flashy escalades you know just as, making as much money as possible and then you sort of see like the whole hipster movement became popular after the crash because it was okay to spend a lot of money on clothes still as long as you were as long as you spent the money to look poor right <laughs> you know and it was i don't know if it was like an, an empathy thing or a guilt thing but it's just funny how it's funny how these these real socioeconomic political things even natural disasters pandemics these real things tangible things create new zeitgeist spirit of time tones right in in a society and that that zeitgeist changes the way people react and then the reaction you know funnels right back into what's going to happen politically right so it's sort of like this cycle and you know the zeitgeist now if you look at like um uh, shows and, and movies that are popular, uh, particularly in the United States, like Handmaid's Tale, Joker. There's this like reoccurring theme of hopelessness and taking justice into your own hands, right? And there's like an antagonism to tradition, sp- specifically in Handmaid's Tale. It, it's sort of like the, you know the, the dogmatists, the traditional people are, are the antagonists and they exploit the vulnerable women, but they underestimate the power of the women. Right. And then in the end they have, you know, not spoiler alert in the end, they, they just take matters into their own hands and they kill the, the, the antagonist from the whole series just without any sort of trial. Right. And you see this in like a lot of shows and I'm wondering like, okay, so if this zeitgeist is real of just like hopelessness and I'm taking things into my own hands, like how does that manifest politically? And it seems to me that we're in sort of like a pre totalitarian state. Yeah. yeah. Well, you guys have protection. You guys have in your constitution that protection to bear the right to bear arms, which I think is yes. fantastic. Something we don't have, and we are seeing totalitarianism creeping on us. From you know, it started with an authoritarian uh, response to COVID, and it's becoming more than that. We're seeing so up in Scotland, for example, we're seeing that the government want to hold on to these emergency COVID powers and get rid of right. COVID, so they can use lockdowns, they can close schools, they can use these powers for anything that they see fit. We're seeing the same in Australia and in England. They're even proposing extending them further. And what what I predict is we'll see these measures used for. Uh, the environment you know in canada they're talking already about using uh, facing this climate emergency this emergency that's been going on for much longer than i've been alive um to fight this so-called emergency with these covid powers so the governments have become used to having these powers and as we know tyranny never comes in through oppression it always comes in through good intention Uh, and once Mm. governments have powers they never want to give them back and we're seeing this and we're seeing it play out in real time and it just seems to me like people haven't learned from history, but how do we fight it? How do we, if democracy isn't working, you know, what's to say that they're not going to, well, in this country, they did actually cancel elections. Uh, for It was for the mayor of London and for local elections, not a government, uh, not a national election, but still they could do the same. They could postpone 
indefinitely elections due to whatever emerges they, they're going to permit so how do we fight back and I, th I think you know you guys have a natural protection thank god for that uh but what are we going to do no idea yeah well and the thing that's you know i've got a couple of close friends we've been talking about the second amendment here in the united states and um you know i'm obviously a supporter of the second amendment i own several firearms but the second amendment is useless if you don't use it so it could be like a subconscious deterrent for potential tyrants to be like oh they're armed i know they're armed but if if, if you're if you, if you have weak character or or if the tyranny is so gradual that you never reach that point of emotional response where you f where you think i'm going to grab my gun and take care of this like then 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 the tyranny can still take hold i mean we've seen in the united states just in the last two years, what I thought, I never thought in my life I would see where people were getting in trouble for going to church. People are closing their businesses. And there's sort of just this like complicity, this compliance rather. And I, I, I'm worried that the culture problem is so deep seated that even though we have the rights, we won't exercise them. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that the West, I thought the US and the UK in particular, were countries that fought for freedom and really mm. cared about civil liberties. I honestly thought that was in our DNA, but I've been so disappointed and surprised to find out that it isn't because people are so willing to give up their liberties. And yeah, they'll say it's because it's an emergency or it's because it's you know urgent and it's just for now. But it, even then, you should never give your liberties away, even if it's just supposedly temporarily, because you never get mm. them back. They're yours. And I just... I despair, in all honesty, because I see, sure. you know, we've got vaccine passports coming out already in this country, uh, and we're seeing that they're already proposing merging them into digital IDs. Uh, we've got the digital currencies being proposed, where the Bank of England wants to dictate where they want control over your money, essentially. They want to say what money can be spent on. So they'll start off with benefits. They'll start off with people on welfare. Say, you can only spend your money in certain places. But right. of course, once they've got that control, they could say, well, you can only spend your money on things that are good for the climate or things that are, you know, don't have a lot of sugar in them. It's for your own good. Yeah. Of course, it's always for our own good. But all of these tyrannies are creeping in right now under our noses. But no one gives a damn because it's all because mm. of COVID. And it's we've got to do this to get out of this blooming pandemic oh you know it's 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 fascinating because i i've i've, I've been a fan of huxley and uh, orwell you know ever since i was in high school and uh for a long time i admired brave new world and 1984 with equal reverence but i think um i think that brave new world is proving to be the better work because it seems to me that the real path to tyranny is not necessarily through violent dominance, as has been historically the case anymore. It is through um, sort of the uh, anesthesia of the masses, rather, or the opiate of the masses type thing, where you just you, you get people comfortable enough that they start to prioritize safety over their rights. And then you just convince them that you're you're the solution to the safety. And it seems to me that this is go we're going to hand it over rather than have it taken from us. Absolutely. That is always the way. But it's about how do we open people's eyes to this? And how do we show them that it's not mm. for their own safety and they're not safer by giving away their liberties? How do we expose this problem and say, you know, well, essentially wake up the sheep? And I think one of the ways is, you know, through your podcast and things like this, you know, having sure. conversations that people are exposed to, just getting people thinking again. But you, like you said, people are compliant and complicit in all of this. Uh, so there's an element of people wanting to protect themselves. If they've gone along with it for so long, it almost you want to double down in order to see it, that you've done the right thing. People don't want to 
be seen to have done the wrong thing. And I think that's what is happening even up to the level of government. You know, we had lockdowns um, early last year when we didn't know much about the virus. But since we figured out that lockdowns don't actually do much to curb the virus, we continue to have them. And even this winter, our government in the UK is talking about having another lockdown. I don't think that's because they think lockdowns work. I think it's because at this point they're doubling down. They made a decision Mm. at one point. People have lost their lives. You know, people are dying because of undiagnosed cancer from not being able to see their doctors, from hospitals only treating people with COVID. We had serious deaths due to government decisions, but at this point, they cannot admit that they were wrong because that would make them culpable. So to avoid accountability, they're doubling down. And we're seeing that all the way from government, all the way down to personal responsibility. People who have sneered at other people for for not wearing masks, people who have had an opinion or something to say, that they've realized at some point might be authoritarian, but they can never admit it to themselves because they would realize they've been complicit. You know, it's funny because I remember I was I was only 11 years old when 9-11 happened here in the United States. And, you know, for like, I don't know how long it was, but it seemed like forever when I was a kid. No one went out after that happened. Everyone was kind of scared, somber, uh, mostly scared, I think. And, you know, you, you see it happen when there's a mass shooting or something for, for like uh, like that, for example. You see them, you know, people don't really go to the movie theater for a couple of weeks. And it seems to me that in the event of a pandemic that's you know overwhelmingly dangerous and i'm not trying to downplay covid i you know, i'm not like a covid denier i know that it's real and that it's it's a high risk for some people okay but in the event of an overly dangerous pandemic you don't have to mandate lockdowns people won't go out like if leprosy out in your apartment complex wouldn't you apartment? Like, so i don't i don't know i just that's why it breeds yeah. conspiracies because if there was truly a pandemic that was really really a killer pandemic people would not want to leave their homes because they'd see people dying and what we have is a virus right. here. it's a bad virus but the vast majority of people will not be seriously affected by this virus the vast majority of people will not die from this virus uh, and governments right. all across the world have overreacted and that's what it is we're seeing a response to their overreaction do you think it was incompetence or do you think it was um uh, malice absolutely incompetence i don't so i don't buy into a lot of these conspiracy theories just because i know a lot of politicians and i know how shit they are essentially i know how, these are normal yeah. people who are trying their best and making mistakes i don't you know i honestly i think klaus schwab is probably demonic <laughs> but i don't think he ha- i don't think there is an evil scheme the great that reset all politicians have signed up to because they're not that clever He's got a very, um, and I'm not saying this to be conspiratorial, but I looked him up the other day, and his history is very uh, obscure. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I mean, there might be people like him in the WF that do have an idea of, I mean, I'm reading The Great Reset at the moment, that do have an idea of how they want to shape the world. And they might be influencing and manipulating events and people. But I I really don't think that our governments are all signed up to it. I don't think it's all a massive conspiracy. Um, I think it's just human nature, people making rubbish decisions and backing backing them up well and the amount of intelligence and leadership skill and determination required to do something like a global conspiracy on that level is um is if, if they if they had that level of competence then a lot of our other problems would be solved too right like we wouldn't have potholes in the road maybe you know, or maybe we'd already have figured out renewable energy i mean we're, you're talking about like on the conspiracy side you have this like notion that our politicians are evil geniuses but then in reality they they all their policies really 
play out kind of stupid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. But what you also have to be careful of is not undermining them or not uh, underestimating them rather because yes. they are going to, while I don't think this came into play because of conspiracy, they are going to use this to their advantage wherever they can. You know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your background, just to kind of give the audience a sense of who you are and, and what, what you've been up to. Um, so I used to work in tech and then um, eventually I became a school teacher. Uh, I was teaching when the first lockdown hit and I was writing all the time I was teaching about how much left-wing indoctrination is taking place in our schools just because I thought, you know, parents need to know what's going on here. It's actually You've seen in the UK too? Oh gosh, yeah, all over. It's infested with identity politics uh, because mm. well-meaning, well-intentioned left-wing teachers live and work in a groupthink environment and they, they don't even see it as indoctrination. They see it as they're doing their best to help fix problems in the world um and they are indoctrinating our young kids with horrible left-wing ide ideologies and so i was writing about that and i started getting asked to speak about it and you know i started writing for the broadsheets and the, and the tabloids and appearing on radio and tv and eventually that's now became that's now become my full my proper gig so i I'm now commentate rather than teach but i like to think i still have a, a bit of an emphasis on education because it is you know it's the most important thing um passing on knowledge is how we curate and maintain our culture and it's something that conservatives need to take more of an interest in because it's the you know as i mentioned earlier the long march through institutions this is how the left have taken over because we've taken a step back and let them get on with it so my wife and i have an eight eight month old daughter what would your adv advice be for how to properly raise and have my daughter educated homeschool absolutely homeschool meet, really? meet other like those were the weird kids when i grew up i know i know and thing is it's quite it's, it's more common for you guys in the states over here it's very very rare to hear homeschool and i i talked about homeschooling this week i got a lot a lot of backlash from teachers and educationists uh, over here i say well, of course it undermines their 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 job but it, but it exposes them as well because i'm, I'm showing the left wing you know i can i can show the content it's out there for anyone to look at what's being taught in our schools but my point is we cannot trust what's going on in school. So 70 to 80% of teachers are left-leaning, 80% of academics are left-leaning, uh, which wouldn't be a problem, but they do see that, that they are right uh, and that we are all bad and evil, not just wrong. Um, so unless parents take a keen interest in what's being taught in their schools, they need to just take them out. And I think meeting like-minded individuals, I think having groups and hubs, there are a lot of great hubs in America, there are a lot of good mm, resources. Of course. Uh, and I think the, the former speaker's got a resource uh, going on but just you know meeting people with subject matter uh knowledge meeting actual experts so i'm not talking about you know being a clueless parent and struggling by yourself to teach your, teach your kids right. and i'm not saying you don't have to have socialization because of course young people need to socialize with other people their own age i'm saying get groups of people together maybe form charter schools or over here we call them free schools that's also a great opportunity but just don't send them to a public school unless you are going to look at the, all of the material that's being taught to your kids but it's not just the material it's the attitudes and the it's it's picked up through osmosis you know i've had so many conversations in the classroom with when i was a teacher pupils would say oh that donald trump is evil no, sorry what okay how is he evil how is it how is he a bad guy oh he's sexist and racist okay so what has he said that's sexist or racist I, I, I don't know. They never have anything to back it up. It's just what they're told constantly. It's opinions that yeah. they're told that they should have to be a good person. 
we have the same thing over here with our prime minister. You know, Boris Johnson's a bad guy. Okay, why is he a bad guy? Because he's a racist. It's always the same thing, isn't it? Because you, once you're racist, that's it. The argument is won. But no, how is he racist? Right. What has he done or said? What policies has he put in place that are racist? And there's never an answer. So just getting them thinking about it is great. But that's not what teachers are doing. Teachers are like, yeah, Brexit's terrible. It's going to be awful. Oh, I'm so sorry it's happening. It's like, wait a minute. You are indoctrinating. So yeah, get mm-hmm. kids up to you. Well, it seems like um, it's on the racism note. It seems like the definition of racism has really shifted too. And maybe I'm wrong about this. So please uh, enlighten me with what you think. But it, at, when I grew up, I was raised that racism was when a person believes that one race is either inherently inferior or superior to another, typically associated with things like intelligence, whatever, right? Things that are valued by society. Now it seems like racism is anything that's like a stereotype, you know? So like if you use a stereotype sort of insensitively, like without any sort of sensitivity, then you're you're all of a sudden you're a racist. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you mean like Hitler racist? Because like there's a, (laughs) there's a huge like spectrum here, right? You know, I'm sorry that I, you know, just assumed you like rap music because you're, you know, from the city and of color, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're racist, right? This is the problem. So the dictionary definition of the term racism means prejudice or discrimination against someone based on their race. So it means talking them down or, like you say, thinking they're inferior because of their race. And that's inappropriate. We would would all agree that's inappropriate. Of course. But what we have now is professors and academics saying, no, that's not what racism is. Racism is a power dynamic between white people and non-white people because white people are in a position of power. So black people can never be racist. And it's like, Wait a minute, that's not, that's not how, well, you're redefining a word to win an argument. That's not clever, but that's what they've done. And that, that's why they have things like microaggressions, which is what you just described, you know, having a stereotype yeah. and that being perceived as racist. But it undervalues real racism because racism does exist. It still does. And it's still right. evil that we need to squash. You know, I've experienced it firsthand. Um, but what people are calling racism today isn't racism. And we can't fight racism unless we agree on what it actually means. Well, and one of the things that I've struggled with just to be um, vulnerable and sincere is the more that I get unjustly accused of being bigoted or racist or prejudiced, the closer I get to actually being racist. You know, it, 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 you know what I mean? Like it, 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 it catalyzes such hate and resentment that you start to, you start to ha- like, you start to feel that way. Right. And it's like an us versus them type thing, you know, not like on an intellectual conscious level, but like on a, on a sort of primitive psychological level, it starts to get nasty. Right. And so it seems to me that by addressing a problem incorrectly or unfairly, they're actually creating the problem. And maybe that's what they want, because if they create the problem, then they can say, see, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right. So is it us versus them. You said is sports. Or it's a tribal mentality and they're polarizing us on purpose because we are stronger together. We're stronger united and they want to divide us. Uh, you know, we've got different histories. I've, I, you know, in America, you've got, you know, African-Americans have a culture. That's an actual thing. But over here in the United Kingdom, we just have Brits. We just have Britons. And if you're black or white or Chinese or whatever, it doesn't matter what race you are. You're just a Brit. I know you guys sometimes right. have that. You can say, we're all American. It doesn't matter. But what they want to do is divide us based on our immutable characteristics. And, you know, I've been told that I need to have a certain opinion because I'm black or mixed race or brown or whatever they want to label me as. But my whole point is, 
if we want to get to a point of diversity and inclusion and equality, these words that they throw around without actually having any meaning, if we want to get to a point of that, surely it shouldn't matter what colour your skin is, you should have the diversity of thought and opinion. I have small C conservative views, that should be acceptable. I shouldn't have to have left-wing liberal views just because my skin colour is brown. Because to me, that is the racism. That is prescribing a, a politics and an opinion on someone based on how they look <laughs> that's very old-fashioned racist thinking but the hardcore left the, the hard left have taken the mentality of the far right and they don't even realize it yeah and man i don't it's such a complicated issue with so many so much nuance but one of the things that's most unnerving to me about the whole identity politics issue is that and no one's really talking about it explicitly. I mean, a few people are, but it, it totally undermines the idea of the individual. And I don't know if you're pro or anti-individualism, right? And I don't mean it from in like the selfish sense from earlier, because I just know that you mentioned, but, but like the idea that who I am is based off of what groups I fall into seems to be a very, um, a, a cheapening of who I am. Right. And that's kind of why I said, that's kind of what, what this podcast is about in a sense. I, you know, I said, I am one American and obviously America identifying as American is identity politics in and of itself. But this podcast yeah. is sort of an attempt to explore what that means. And it's sort of a self-actualization exercise for me that just that I'm doing it. And I guess the point that I'm trying to make is I don't think that it's a good thing when you ask someone, you know, well, you know, what's, what's the first thing you think of about yourself? And then their, their response is their race or their religion. It's like, I'm like, no, I'm chase. I'm not white. I'm chase, you know? And so I don't know. It just seems, it seems like this, this has implications down the line as we cheapen and cheapen individuals where the, just the attention all gets on what's good for the mob or what's good for the collectivists. And maybe I'm just being obscure, but I don't no, know. You're absolutely right. Because you know, I am British or I'm a Christian. These are two things that are core mm -hmm. to my identity because they're two sure. things that I choose to be. Uh, I wasn't yes. born, well, I mean, I was born British, but I, I choose to remain here because I think it's the greatest place in the world to live. I'm sure you share similar thoughts about America. Um, Texas. But I don't identify first and foremost as black or biracial or mixed race or you know whatever label they want to use on me because it's unimportant. My skin color is actually unimportant. I'm not proud of it, mm. but I'm not ashamed of it either. It just is. It's, you know, it's a part of me, just like my hair is brown and my eyes are brown. Um, now, they see it differently, and I think it's a form of control because they think the left, I'm talking about when I say they, if they put us in mm. these boxes, they can control us. And it used to be all about class, but they've lost the class war for a whole host of reasons. But now, if they shove us into an, an identity box based on our immutable characteristics, say black people there, the trans people there, the gay people there, the women there, and then they can say, women should vote this way, black people should vote this way. Uh, we are the party for black people. Uh, that's how they get your vote. That's how they get into power. And that's right, how they win. It's right. a form of control. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, to me, and I, I don't want to just talk, bring up Ayn Rand over and over again, and I'm not like an uh, uh, Ayn Rand disciple, but I love several several of her books. Okay, so The Fountainhead fundamentally changed my life when I read it in high school because of the emphasis on the individual. And I know that Howard Rourke was not a perfect character or a perfect hero. Um, and there were some flaws there, I think, in the way that she executed that. But the idea that, hey, listen, you, you need to live your life with integrity to your own values, not by selling out to what is expected of you, right? And other people read the book and they thought, oh, he's such a selfish asshole. And he kind of was, <laughs> but it's not really about 
being selfish and, you know, sacrificing others for yourself. Like I said earlier, it's really about living according to your own values and not compromising those values. And it seems to me like what I don't understand is I felt so empowered by that book and by that character that I don't understand why anyone would give up voluntarily their individuality for the sake of an identity, for, you know, like a, a group identity. Why do people choose that? I would say because you are a true liberal, the, the, in the term mm. true classic, liberal yeah. word, in that, yeah, classical liberal, in that you believe that every individual has the right to live their lives according to their values and, and how right. they see fit as long as they're not harming other people. That's perfect. That's fine. Right. But that's where my train of thought was going. But I think when, what, when it comes to not seeing that, when it comes to putting people into these collectives, it's because it comes from a sense of wanting to belong as well. So it's not always mm. about... Um, so I, I talked about control and power, but from the other end of the, why they get people onto their control, why they get people into their control rather, is because people want to belong. People want to be part of a group and we've lost our groups. So essentially in the West, Christianity used to be our group. Um, yeah. It used to, we, the West used to be, you know, America was, I know it's not a Christian country, but essentially it was a Christian country. Great Britain is a Christian country. And sure. the, they have core moral values that we know, they're very explicit, we know what they are, we can subscribe to them, and we were all part of, while we were individuals, we were part of a collective that we all belonged to because we chose to belong to it. And without that right. group, we, we looked to fill the void in other ways, which is why we see people joining Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter and all these extremist, hardcore left groups that offer a moral code and they offer that us versus them mentality. They offer a place to belong, a collective. People need that in their lives. And I think without religion, people reach out to what's closest to them. And that, that tends to be these hard left ideologies. Yeah, I guess politics is the, the, next, the next closest thing to God, right? So if God is dead, then your political affiliation is really the higher power that you subscribe to, right? Yeah, blame nihilism, yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that Nietzsche sort of saw it coming. When he when he when he wrote about that, because we saw in the 20th century a dramatic replacement of sort of faith in a metaphysical truth to reliance on you know very real states. There's sort of a state worship that happened you know all over the place with World War II and everything and all the tyrants. So I just I don't see culturally I don't see I don't see re faith and religion ever reaching the point that they they had maybe a hundred years ago when they sort of seem to have peaked just because I think that people are more skeptical just generally. And for some reason, though, I don't agree with the sentiment, um, the more scientific people become the um, farther from any sort of spirituality. They seem, they seem to get a lot of times, right? Well, that's a, that's that. a huge, that's a, that's a too, too broad of a brush. Yeah, that's an enlightenment argument that people often use. A lot of atheists use that. Okay. Yeah, the smart you are, I'm not an atheist, by the way, so I'm not trying to make that case. No, I'm just... It's a case right, that okay. people use. And, but I think the key word that you used in that, in that conversation right there was truth. It should mm. always be about the pursuit of truth, much better yes. than the pursuit of happiness, because there is a universal truth. And I, I firmly believe that, and I think that comes from God, and we should be chasing truth and beauty at all times. However, mm. people have forgotten that, and, and I think the reason the West has become less religious, isn't that we, well, we're chasing science, because science came from Christianity, let's not forget. It's because we're, we're self-depreciating and self-flagellating at every, every chance. Mm. And it also comes back to inclusivity, because there are other faiths in the West now, and we want to be welcoming to them. 
and we want to take on board those people and their values, but we forget to maintain our own and we water down our own values. And that always happens with inclusivity. You know, you say you don't think that the West will become religious again. I think it will, but I don't think of Christianity. I think Islam is rising and rising to our own detriment. Yeah, but it's not really a very compelling religion. I mean, obviously it is because so many people have adopted over the last thousand years, but there's nothing. I mean, maybe it's just my overwhelming bias and momentum in a Western culture direction, but there's absolutely nothing about that religion that's appealing to me. I read the Quran. I had to read it in college. I'm familiar with the, the faith to some modest degree, and it sucks. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I'm sorry. And, and I, well, I respect people for their faith. All right. So I'm not, I'm not like a xenophobe by any means, but I am philosophically opposed yeah, to yes. that religion. And if I wasn't, I would be Muslim. Yeah, and anyone who's not Muslim that says, oh, you're a xenophobe, it's like, well, then why are you Muslim? You know? <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, sucks I mean, was a hard word, but it's just, it, it's, it's I don't know. It's just, it, it's a faith yeah. that scares the hell out of me. And it's a conversation yeah. I don't have very often. Because people that uh, practice it do tend to be zealots, and there yes. is no middle ground. It's either again, it's us versus them, but we are all infidels to them, and we're all fair game. And it's a very scary place to be when it's becoming more and more prominent. And that's only because there's no opposition. There's no. We're not providing the Christian alternative. We're not saying here is a faith of love. Forget the faith of war. Uh, we're because we're afraid to. And we need to stop being afraid. I know it's easier said than done because even I'm bloody scared of it. But. We have to start standing up for Christian values because they are Western values. That is where we get them from. Well, why do you think nobody? Why do you think nobody talks about the uh, consanguinity? And I may be pronouncing that wrong. The consanguinity issue in the Middle East, particularly in Islam. Are you familiar? What? what sorry. Uh, con, oh, I, I could be pronouncing it wrong. It's consanguinity, which is cousin marriage. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I'm, looking, yeah, I'm not trying to be controversial or put you on the spot or make you uncomfortable. No, if you look up the study, if you look up the real studies that have been done, I, as of 2003 in the in Middle Eastern regions, it was as high as 45 percent of people who were married were married to their first or second cousin. It's a big problem here in the United Kingdom. It really is. Uh, a lot of Pakistani families uh, have this issue, and we see it in schools, but we never talk about it. We, we don't talk about it. But you see the uh, the defects that the young children sure. have, the young Pakistani Muslim children have because they are, because of intermarriage and, and the amount of incest going on in those communities. Um, but no one, no politician dares address it. It's just too touchy because it's offensive to just... No, but it's because I mean, we I, cannot I touch Islam. We cannot mention Islam. We cannot do anything uh, against Well, it. I, I think it explains a lot of the radicalism. I mean, a lot of the mental health issues associated with having a thousand years worth of first cousin after first cousin after first cousin, right? This is this is exponential, right? I mean, it's layered. And that, I mean, that leads to all sorts of problems. I'm not just cleft lip, <laughs> like depression, mental illness, anger issues. And I don't know. It, it seems to me that a lot of this is being is manifest in, in what we're seeing politically in, the, in those nations. I think that's a very good point. And we do need to somehow address it. But the, the question is how, if, we, if none of our people in power right. are willing to have the conversation and anytime we bring it up as civilians, we're, you know, classed as bigots and xenophobes and racists how do we get to a point where mm. we can even even measure if it's a thing yeah well thank you for coming on and highlighting all the world's problems with me today <laughs> where can where can people find you um 
I would say just Google Calvin Robinson. I don't want to promote any particular social media platform because I don't know sure. when they're going to cancel me. <laughs> but I'm on all of them. Yeah. And my name is Calvin Robinson. All of them. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. I could talk to you for a long time. I appreciate you being uh, patient and having conversations about some very touchy things. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with anything, yeah, but uh, you know, if we're, if we're not going to, if we're not going to talk about something important, you know, or controversial, then what, what are we talking about? Why are we talking at all? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's do this again sometime. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Take care and thank you.